Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Sing praise, sing praise. Mighty hand and outstretched arm, His love endures forever. And for the life that's been reborn, His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise.
Everybody was wore out from what I understand. It was a long week by everyone who was here, but it could not have come off any better, in my opinion, as an outsider looking in, uh, because I, I was breezing through and watching everybody and the interaction between the kids. You should pat yourself on the back, Rocky Valley, because you did a wonderful job. And the, the impact that we have on those children's lives will never be known, um, probably. But, but we, we did our part, and we showed them the love of Jesus. As we continue to worship, we think about the faith. I'm glad I had a father that took me to church and a mother. But it's Father's Day, so we're going to talk about our dads. And I'm glad his father thought enough of him to take him to church. And so he could hear the gospel and about the saving love of our Savior. And we think about those down the generations and on and so forth as we sing our next hymn, Faith of Our Fathers Living Still. Think about all that the apostles endured persecution in jail, uh, those that were beaten and scorned and persecuted for the sake of Jesus. As we stand to our feet, as we sing, faith of our fathers, living still.
continue to worship. We think about what the family means today in, in the 21st century. And I charge each and every father in this room that this may be our prayer in the future. Let it be said of us. We sang this song three or four weeks ago. And I, I, there's only one way to learn something to where you can possess it in here. And that's to sing it and or read it and or memorize it. And I want you to learn this song, church, to where you can ponder these words in your heart. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore every cross we were given, that we fought the good fight, that we finished the course, knowing within us the power of the risen Lord. Choir, will you stand as we sing?
I'll hold it. <laughs> and this is the price is right. So, before I do what I came up here to do, I do want to give a quick recap of Bible school this week because, first off, the video was tremendous, and I think you saw a recurring theme if you looked at those pictures as I've looked at them through the week. You saw smiles on the children's faces. You saw adults working uh, to serve the Lord by serving the children. Um, what you saw was the church being the church, church. Um, and just so you know what happens when the church is the church, people get saved. That's what happens. Uh, there were two young ladies who, who gave their heart and soul to the Lord, who put their trust in Jesus uh, who repented of their sins, who were broken. You know, every time I, I deal with a child who's dealing with the Lord, there's always joy, but occasionally there's brokenness. And for those two young ladies, there was brokenness in addition to the joy. Uh, there, were, there were 10 other children who began to ask questions about their faith, uh, who, who maybe they didn't understand everything, but they knew they loved Jesus, uh, and they knew they believed in Jesus. You know, so they're, they're right there. They're asking those questions that a child needs to begin to ask. And that's because the church was the church. The people showed up to work and serve the Lord with gladness and with joy. Nobody showed up uh, miserable. Maybe you were tired. Maybe you deep down were miserable, but you put a good smile on your face and you faked your preacher out because I thought you were happy anyway. And in addition to that, just so you'll know, those of you who, who, who gave... Uh, food uh, for, for Hearts for Hunger, we were able to give out 35 boxes of food in about 20 minutes yesterday. Um, and then I was able to, to send a message to my missionary friend in Honduras, and I was able to say, hey, I've got incredible news. The children in Bible school adopted the scriptures in school program for their mission, and because of that, they brought in enough money that we're going to be able to send you 60 Bibles. To which he sent me a message back and said, Praise God, that is over 1,200 children in Honduras that will be exposed to the Scripture of God through the Scripture in Schools program. So let me just tell you, for one, one week, the church was the church. Two people got saved and 1,200 kids in Honduras are going to hear the Word of God. Now, hang on. Because I'm a preacher, and I don't pat you on the back too much without kicking the legs out from under you. That's how Daddy taught me to get tough. <laughs> what would happen if the church decided to be the church for one year? What would happen if the church decided to be the church for one month? Why don't we just start with another week? We can't do Bible school every week, but we can pour everything that we have because what God has given us is so precious into serving the Lord. Last night was my privilege to do what I get the opportunity to do again now, and that is welcome one of the bravest and finest young men that I've ever had the privilege to meet to this stage. 
Most of you know that at this point as your pastor, I've not surrendered the stage on Sunday morning when I was in town, not one time. And I gladly do it this morning to Captain Nathan Nelson. So I want all of you to give him a warm Rocky Valley welcome this morning. It's, it's truly an honor to be up here in front of you and have the opportunity to, to share with you the, the cross that we've been given to bear. Um, but it's not in a miserable way. It's, it's entirely a joyful, wonderful cross because ultimately... We understand what that means for our salvation and our eternity. First, I'd like to say I just I praise God for this beautiful day, uh, this beautiful weekend that I've had a, the great pleasure to come up here and, and spend some time with my earthly father. Um, I was one of those that that was blessed to uh, to have a, a two parent home and and have a loving father that took me to church. As a matter of fact, we were remarking, this church looks exactly like the church I was raised in, in Enid Lake, Mississippi. And um, uh, the, the piano player looks exactly like my, my fourth grade teacher who played our piano uh, at my church. So talking about bringing back some memories, this is really special to come here, and it's, it's been fantastic. But, uh, but like you said, for us, true blessing generationally you know his father um, my grandfather pop who raised them up here closely close by in, in Murfreesboro uh, took took my dad to church and my dad did the same thing so I was raised with those those truths that carried me through the most difficult time in my life which I'm here to share with you about so I wasn't raised here. My dad was raised in, in Murfreesboro. Um, I was raised in North Mississippi in a, in a small town and um, got out of there as soon as I graduated high school and took off and roamed around for a little bit. Ultimately, I joined the Air Force. I enlisted the Air Force uh, when I was 23. Um, didn't really know what I was gonna do with my life uh, at that point. Uh, but it ended up being a good decision for me. And I, I knew that, hey, I wanted to make a career out of it. So I, I worked real hard. I got my degree. Um, and I got accepted for officer training school. And um, so my wife and I uh, moved down to Texas. We went through officer training school and uh, intelligence officer training. Um, and started a brand new, brand new life. Of course, as many of you know, the military moves you around constantly. So, uh, in the in the course of uh, the first five years of our marriage, we moved uh, four times. 
I think, from Illinois to Texas, uh, a couple of times in Illinois, but uh, up to Texas, and then all the way to Tacoma, Washington, where I was really excited to start uh, my new job, my first job as a intelligence officer. I was going to be the director of intelligence for the 22nd Special Tactics Squadron. And uh, what that means is uh, the Air Force has um, a small special operations component where we pair up with Navy SEALs or the, the Green Berets and we go out and do our nation's bidding. And we train hard and we, we, we work hard uh, to fight a very intense uh, mission. And so I was very excited about it. Um, I, was, I was training very, very hard. Matter of fact, as soon as we moved to Tacoma in the, in the spring of 2012, the squadron I was joining was already deployed, so I had to drop my bags and go to Afghanistan and catch up with us, uh, catch up with them, um, which highlights some of the struggles that my wife often faced, having to keep everything at the home front uh, safe and secure while I was over on the opposite side of the world. Um, when I got back, uh, we settled into the very first house we'd ever purchased, and um, things were looking really good. We were real excited about where we were. I was, um, it was really, you know, kind of the pinnacle of, of my life. You know, I, I realized at that time, like, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm 30 years old, uh, physically fit. You know, I was 6'1" about 195, and I was just exercising all the time. My wife and I had just bought our first home. We had two cars in the driveway, and, um, and I was at the, at the beginning of what I was planning to be a very long and successful career as uh, an Air Force officer. Over the course of that, that next year, when we got back at the end of 2012, and the spring of, of 13, we were hesitantly looking forward to my next deployment, which was going to be in August of 13. It was going to be my third trip to Afghanistan. So we kind of knew a little bit what to expect. Um, uh, this one was going to be a little shorter because in April of that year, we got the most wonderful news, and Jen was pregnant with our first child which we had been trying for and praying for for uh, the last few years, and we were so excited. So my commander said um, that he, he promised he was going to send me home 30 days before my daughter was supposed to be born. So we took off um, for that deployment two days after I found out we were having a little girl, and we were excited. My wife and I would... Skype and, and she would tell me all about how she picked out the crib and she's getting the, the baby's room set up and she was so excited. Uh, still working her, her job. She had gotten a, uh, a job up there doing event planning. And things were really, really looking good for us. I was doing a, a battlefield rotation type job where I would go travel to these special operations, forward operating bases, and spend time with the, 
the special operations teams and their combat controllers and, and help them find the enemy better. I was a, an intelligence expert. I, I taught them how to use the intelligence aircraft that we had to, um, to really narrow down and find out the guys that were no kidding trying to, trying to hurt and kill us. And um, my first couple of months there were real successful. We were doing a, a good job. And I had one of our teams call me and said uh, they, were, they were struggling to find where the, the enemy was and could I come down there and help. So I traveled down to the southeast of Afghanistan and spent about a week there with them and uh, had a tremendous amount of success. It was just a small Ford operating base encompassed a, an area about the size of your, your parking lots combined, if you can imagine that, very small. Uh, all the buildings on there were uh, made of like half-inch plywood, just kind of put together, no paint or anything like that. It was just thrown up real quick. Um, but we were out there just in the middle of nowhere. You could see for miles around. Well, that that um, last morning, I was scheduled to depart later on in the day. I uh, had a helicopter transport coming to pick me up that afternoon. And uh, I woke up early that morning, and I was laying on a, a cot in one of their transient buildings. And uh, it was funny, because I, I woke up, and I looked at my watch, and it said 07 o'clock on the dot, which was kind of strange without an alarm, just waking up right on the, the dot. Um, and I kind of rolled over because I ate breakfast there late at like 8.30. I was like, yeah, I was kind of in that mood. I didn't know if I was going to snooze a little longer or maybe get up and get another workout in before I packed everything up. And for the next five minutes, I, I laid there and contemplated how I was going to spend my day. At 7.05, a single round of 107-millimeter rocket fire came in and hit my building. Uh, for those of you who don't know much about indirect fire, a 107-millimeter rocket has a diameter about the size of a softball, and it stands about three and a half feet tall. The insurgency likes to take these and set them up uh, on a rock and, and kind of aim them towards a, a big base four or five miles away. Just kind of aim it there and set up a little timer and, and then take off and run away. And, Later on, the timer would click and the rocket would fire, and they would just kind of hope that it would hit. This one did. About three feet above my head, uh, the rocket came through and blew out the whole wall that I had my head laid, up, laid against. I came to just a couple of seconds after the explosion with dust and debris falling down from the ceiling. And I knew something terrible had happened, something significant had happened. And I knew I was pretty badly messed up. I just didn't know the extent of it. And I was fortunate that the guys that were on that team rushed into the building, um, even though it was coming apart. I rushed into that building because I knew I was in there. 
this guy come through, Staff Sergeant Eamon Anderson, came through and saw me sitting up, came running over to me, and I was just covered in dust and, and everything. And I was really struggling to breathe. The explosion had collapsed both of my lungs, so I was take, taking very, very shallow breaths, and it was very difficult for me to communicate exactly what was going on, but he knew what was happening, and he knew how severe it was. So he sent for the medic, and during that time, he, he helped me uh, out of my shirt and started the necessary life-saving procedures. The medic got there, and I mean, they had to do battlefield surgery right there in the dust in Afghanistan. They cut holes on, on each side of my chest straight through in between my ribs and stuck these quarter-inch tubes into my chest to help let the air out so that I could start breathing again, which is an incredible feeling. And they rolled me over. And they saw that from my collarbone to my ankle, I'd been littered with dozens and dozens of pieces of hot steel shrapnel that had gone into my back. And from those large gaping wounds, I was just pouring blood. It was pooling underneath me. I could tell by the urgency in their voice, although they tried their best to remain calm and keep me calm, that I knew it was severe. I, they called for more chest seals and just something to try to stop the blood. For the next 30 minutes, I remained conscious and, and watched the, the confidence that they had in their eyes of what they were doing. And they loaded me up on the helicopter, and that was the last I remember. On the other side of the world, at 6 o'clock in the morning, my wife was awoken by our little Pomeranian scratching and pawing and yelping at the door of her bedroom. And Jen gets up upset because she doesn't wake up at 6 usually a couple hours later, but um, she get, got up and opened the door and Barkley ran downstairs and started pulling at the front door and she kind of starts teetering down to, to figure out what was going on. She heard somebody knock on the door, goes out and looks, kind of peers through the window. And it was at that moment that her worst fear was realized. At our doorstep, my squadron commander, my flight doc, and our chaplain stood waiting to give her the worst news that she's ever received. She opened the door and she said, just tell me he's alive. And I said, she is, we don't know, or he is, but we don't know for how long. We don't know how bad it is. She said, well, give me a plane ticket because I'm going to it. About a week later, I'd gone through a half dozen surgeries in Afghanistan, and I was just stable enough to fly back to the U.S. When I arrived in Bethesda, Maryland at Walter Reed Army Medical Hospital, my whole family was there. My grandmother, my aunt, my dad, my stepmom Liz, and my beautiful wife, who threw on a a uh, 
a really amazing blue dress, did her hair up, did her makeup, even though she knew I was coming in in a coma, <laughs> straight, uh, straight from the hospital, and I wouldn't have seen her. She's still dressed up for me. And I stood by my side. There's a, there was a time there shortly after the, a physician sat down next to us just when I came back into consciousness and, and told us about what the life of a quadriplegic looks like. And she was trying to be very truthful and very upfront and blunt about it so that we could start dealing with it. But she told my wife and I, um, she told me, she said, look, Lieutenant Nelson, your, your wife um, is going to have to take care of you for the rest of your life. She's going to have to help you get dressed every single day. She's probably going to have to help you use the bathroom every time you have to go. And uh, unless a miracle happens, she's probably going to have to feed you every single meal for the rest of your life. which was an unbelievable thing to hear for a man who was so self-sufficient and so strong and, and had so much control over everything in his life. To be told that I'm going to be completely dependent on, on my wife when she was already three months away from giving birth to our first child and having another completely dependent person rely solely on her. But God bless my wife. She said, don't worry, Nate. We're, we'll, we'll make it through. We'll be, we'll be okay. At that moment, though, I realized that I should have died. And it's only by God's grace that I was still here. At any other period in our history, fighting wars, I would have just really, really been killed there on the battlefield. But, but for, for me, he brought me back. And I realized that the Lord has a plan and a purpose and a will for each and all of our lives. And, and for me, this was part of it. And I didn't understand why. I didn't understand what it was all about and what purpose it would serve. But I knew that it was incumbent upon me to, to recognize that he's in control and that this was just part of what he had in store for me. And for me, that was very, very comforting. Now, over the course of the, the next few years, we suffered through a tremendous amount of deteriorating health complications and frustrations with our new way of life. But ultimately, we look back and, and recognize that for us, the foundation for our resiliency and the reason why we feel our life is full of abundant joy is because of our rooted foundation and love for Christ and our faith in Christ. The good news now I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to that moment where 
I came into the hospital, and I was all hooked up with tubes, and I had a feeding tube going through my nose. I was on a ventilator through my neck, and I was laid back, and I was covered with, with dust from Afghanistan, and I'd, I'd been split open because they had just they tried to repair everything inside and get as much of the shrapnel out as they possibly could. And I have a photo of my wife in the blue dress standing beside me, pregnant little basketball belly in front of her. She's fantastic. I love it. And at the foot of my bed was my father. And he's looking at me. And you can see in his face all this love and fear. And you could just see him wrestling with God and praying that I didn't have to be here and that God was going to fix me. And if he wasn't going to fix me, Lord, let, let me bear these pains. Let me bear this suffering. Don't let it be him. I love my father because he first loved me. That moment reminded me also, reflected for me, our heavenly father. I know that it's easy for me to say that. Yeah, this is my cross to bear, and I praise God. It's very difficult when it's the suffering of your child because I looked at that photo and I thought, you know, Dad, if you could just understand that I'm at peace. I put myself, though, in his shoes and thought if that was my little girl there, I don't know if I could have that same that same comfort. It would be really difficult to praise God in that moment. So I know that for a parent to a child to see them suffer in that way, it's immensely more difficult than our own suffering. And it reminds me of our Heavenly Father who knew that His one and only perfect Son had to be sent to suffer for all of us. And He loved us so much. Not because we were His at that time, but because He wanted to give us an opportunity to be adopted Adopted sons and daughters. He said, knowing he was going to suffer, knowing that he was going to die. And it really put in perspective for me the depth of love that God the Father has for each and every one of us because there is no, there is no greater love than that. And it's impossible for me to really fathom and capture. I'm going to read 
one scripture that reflects on that point. I consider, this is Romans 8.18, Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This time for us here on earth is solely 100% about glorifying God. It's not about our will. It's not about our happiness here. It's incumbent upon us. We were all created to glorify Him. The future and eternity, that's about happiness and glorification for us. As we continue to glorify the Father and Son, But just know that all of us are going to have suffering and evil in our lives. Our friends or family are going to have cancer. We're going to go through a bankruptcy or divorce. Our children might pass away just a couple of months into our lives, into their lives. It's terrible to think about does it all mean? Why does this have to happen? God, couldn't you do it another way? But he is the almighty, all-powerful commander of the universe. His ways are higher than ours. Just as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that has to be our, our mantra as we go through this suffering. But the suffering is ultimately for, for wonderful, wonderful, abundant joy because I can tell you that my life, just like the life of Job in the second half, was much more wonderful and blessed than it was in the first my heart is overflowing with joy and happiness now. And I praise God that he afflicted me with this gift so that it drew me closer to him, that I have a platform and that people will listen to me stand in front of them and tell them about my love for Christ. I just want to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to sit in front of you today and share what Christ has done in our lives. I want to thank again my father. It's Father's Day. I want to thank my father in heaven for the most amazing gift he's given us, and that's more of him. The greatest thing that 
could ever be given. And I want to charge you all out there, especially the men. There's a world of broken families out there, young boys without fathers and men that grew up without fathers. And they need you. They need to see what right looks like. Christ charged us to go out into all nations and make disciples. Go and find some of these men who weren't blessed like we were to have strong earthly fathers to show us the right way to live. There's prime opportunity. Thank you again for allowing me to come up here. Thank you. fool with that microphone, I promise you that. As, as I met Captain Nelson yesterday, we talked via email. I'd seen some videos. I didn't physically shake the man's hand until last night, just prior to our men's event. And if you didn't come to the men's event, you missed it. At a full band, the electric guitarist was the best-looking man I've ever seen in my life. Uh, this, this man brought, brought the same passion and same story from a different direction. You don't know what it was, and I'm not going to tell you because you missed it. But we met last night, and, and I said, hey, in the morning, you just, you just do what the Spirit leads you to do, and then I'll go. Now... I said that very confidently and very calmly. But those of you who work back there in the sound booth and, and work with me, you know that uh, I, I prepare hard and then let the spirit take over. But I do a lot of preparation first. Last night, as you were speaking, realized I had no idea what I was going to say when you were done. Because as you were speaking today, I thought of 127 different places in Scripture to go. But I settled here. It's in Acts chapter 16. And just to bring you up to speed, where we're at, Paul and Silas have been preaching Jesus. That's the only thing that they had done wrong was that they had preached their faith. And when a little girl who helped a, uh, a man peddle a false gospel, realized that they were cutting in on their sales of idols, she began to tell people what bad people Paul and Silas were, and the crowd jumped on board and threw them in prison. 
so far in the prison that they weren't, so, so, so in the prison then you had like a prison, and then you had a prison inside a prison, and then you went down into a prison inside of that prison, okay? And inside of that prison they would charge a jailer in front of the prisoners as they didn't want out, and that jailer would guard those men literally with his life, because if they got loose, his punishment would be death. The shame would be so great that his punishment would be death. And so Paul and Silas sit down at the prison inside the prison that's under the prison that's in the prison. With a man charged to watch them with their lives, they were shackled hand and foot to the wall. They weren't going anywhere. But in Acts 16.25, the word of God says something tremendous. It says, but at midnight. That time's important. It's the darkest hour of the day, by the way. It was midnight. That means it was the middle of what should have been the worst moment of their lives. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So in the moment that was supposed to be the worst, Paul and Silas said, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to praise God. They said, I'm going to have a little church service right here at the prison, in the prison, in the prison, under the prison. Because they can... Bind my hands. They can bind my feet. But they cannot take my joy. Because my joy does not come from my circumstances. My joy comes from the Lord. My friends. I thank God that I've met you. And I think all of you thank God that you heard this man's testimony, but if I could echo anything out of his testimony to you this morning. In the moments that should have been the worst, where he should have turned and said, I hate you, God, for what you've done to me. He found a joy that was unexplicable, that he said surpassed what he had before. And that's because that joy is found in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that I, if you put your joy and your hope in anything of this earth, those circumstances change. The only thing that's never, ever changed is Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen. And that is an unshakable, unexplainable, untakeable joy. And so this morning, my challenge to you is this. We're, we're about to have a hymn of response. And then at time, we're going to do one of three things. You've got an option to do one of three things in this hymn of response. You can, one, respond by coming to the altar of the Lord and leaving whatever it is that's taking your joy away here. You can leave it there, but there is something special about coming to surrender at the feet of Jesus. You got that option during this hymn of response. You can respond by saying, Jesus gave me a joy that no situation can take away, and I'm going to leave that situation right here and enjoy my life in Jesus Christ. I didn't say you'd never be sad again. I didn't say you'd never have hard times. But I said your joy, you could rise up with that joy. The other way you can respond, you can say, through all of this, through all of this that I've heard today, I've recognized one thing, Brother Jason. I have recognized that I've never felt that joy. I've never given my life to Jesus. I've been to church. I've been to Sunday school. I, I, I've been to discipleship training. I went to VBS and learned the songs and did the dances, but I've never given my life to Jesus Christ. 
Friend, you can come and let today be the most joyous day where you receive the love of a father that far surpasses anything you've ever felt. Or you can respond in a third way, and you have this option. You can stand up, and you can stand there, and you can forget everything that either one of us have said this morning. You can sing a song, and you can go to lunch. So will you respond? By putting your trust in Jesus and saying, I will be joyous, I will sing hymns of praise this morning. So let's respond to the Lord together this morning. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.